When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Totally worth walking in heels. Because supporting students takes everyone. Baby center. We don't sleep either. Vaginas make all things possible. Hey there, and welcome back to the Webby Podcast. What does it mean to be a parent? And what does it look like to embark on the journey to becoming one? My next guest, Hillary Frank, is an award-winning journalist and NPR radio producer that started exploring the world of parenting in 2010 with her Webby Award-winning podcast, The Longest Shortest Time. What started as a collection of stories to help Hillary navigate her own parenting experience quickly became an online community of adults from all walks of life sharing the real concerns, societal blockades, and even entertaining tactics that comes with attempting to raise another life. We talked about her journey to creating The Longest Shortest Time, Hillary's intentional decision to share parenting stories rather than advice, which stories of parenting are still underreported, as well as her new book, Weird Parenting Wins, a collection of personal essays from her own parenting journey and funny tactics adults employ with their kids. So you started The Longest Shortest Time 10 years ago. Is that right? At the end of 2010. The end of 2010, we're at the beginning of 2019. So the whole zero thing, I guess, is a little bit of a weird thing, but almost 10 years ago. We'll yeah. All right. Um, that seems like it was just yesterday, which I think is a compliment, I think. <laughs> well, yeah. Thanks. It that, still feels it like is, fresh It's and the longest, and, shortest time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, tell me a bit about why you started it for people who, who maybe are, aren't as familiar yeah. um, with the podcast. So I had a really rough childbirth and recovery. I wasn't able to walk for the first two months of my daughter's life because of an injury that I got. And then four months after she was born, we moved to a town where I knew nobody. And I was trying to make friends with new people and and meet some other moms. And I was finding it really hard to connect with people in a real way. I would have things happen where I would go into a coffee shop and see a mom with a little baby and be like, wow, look at you. You're out and about. That's so awesome. And they'd be like, well, it's been two weeks, you know, and here I was like, I couldn't walk for four months. And it was just the end of the conversation. But I had had at that point a little over a decade of experience as a radio reporter. And I knew that if you stick a microphone under somebody's face, they're more likely to go deep with you and you have license to ask them anything. Hmm. And so I started interviewing people, some people that I knew, and then very quickly got pitches from people I didn't know. And this was all like in the very beginning just to help me, just to help me feel better. And it turned out that it made a lot of other people feel better too. And I wasn't necessarily looking for people who had gone through the same thing I had gone through, but to know that there was like diversity in the struggle of becoming a parent. 
was your peer group not at the parenting stage yet? Was that like also part of it? Yeah, I think my close friends who had kids didn't live nearby. Mm. And my close friends who did live nearby didn't have kids yet or weren't interested in having kids. Yeah. And um, so talk about the beginning of doing a podcast. You had a lot of experience as a radio reporter. So you'd done radio. So you had a lot of experience with audio and how to tell stories and all that kind of stuff. But Mm -hmm. also starting your own podcast is a different challenge in its own right. Can you talk about that a bit? For sure. And podcasting was really different um, in 2010 than it is now. Yeah, it wasn't as cool. It wasn't as cool, and you couldn't make a living doing it. There were a few people who were starting to, but it was not a thing. That's not why I started it. I started it because I wanted to get a full-time job in radio, and Mm. I wanted to prove that I still had chops. I had been a freelancer for a decade, and I wanted a full-time job so I could have stability as a parent. So I created this thing sort of as my calling card to say, like, look, like this is this is my work sample. And I was actually finding that it was really hard to get those pieces on the radio because that's how I was going to get attention for the podcast was by airing um, some cut down versions of my interviews on other shows. And people did not want to hear stories about motherhood. Why do you think that was? Well, so I actually, I wrote about this in the New York Times. I wrote an op-ed called The Special Misogyny Reserved for Mothers. And over the years, I have come to realize that the reason that people didn't want it is because I think as a society, we have a bias against moms in general and about content about mothers. People were, were giving me feedback like, you know, this subject matter is just really small. You know, I got one comment that I sounded like a little girl. I had never gotten any comments like that on my voice before. And I have a pretty deep voice. So I, I kept getting all these strange comments and and piled up. I, I realized that that editors tend to not want content about motherhood. Yeah. I, I'm just thinking back to that time also. On some level, it seems like a really like old way of viewing media to be saying that because you know, today in 2019, whether it's motherhood or people who are really into fermenting things or, you know, the idea of like content that's for niche audiences that people will be really passionate about is is like fairly popular. Mm-hmm. Um, it really wasn't as popular then because, as you said, like the podcast industry didn't really exist. So I guess we can give them a kind of a pass on at least not getting like overall media trends. But it feels really old, you know, now to imagine that people thought that way because like there's there's like incredible content um, outside of the misogyny issue which we can talk about but like there's incredible content about all sorts of topics that are not big or (laughs) mainstream now right right i mean well back then one of the podcasts that was doing really well was 99 percent invisible right by roman mars and that is about design and architecture lots of lots of a big mainstream topic right (laughs) Right. right and then you have like reply all which is you know about the internet For me, I was like, well, this is one of the most universal, like, niches you could possibly have because we all have mothers. We all came from some kind of parent. So when you first started collecting stories and when you first started the podcast, what were the type of stories that you were focused on? What were the – who were the people? And tell us a bit about sort of that early editorial. In the early days, I did a story about parents who thought that their kid wasn't going to make it, was in the NICU for a long time, moms who were having trouble breastfeeding. My first story was about a woman whose baby wouldn't stop crying and cried even louder 
when she would sing lullabies to him. And she was a music teacher. So that was like ironic. (laughs) And then I did one about a mom whose toddler would not wear clothes and, and went for like six weeks totally naked. They couldn't leave the house. I'm always so impressed with the parents who like really gracefully handle the stuff that can make the parents feel socially awkward. And, you know, you shouldn't really feel bad or anything because like they're just two-year-olds or one-year-olds, but it's kind of natural sometimes that your kids do things that, but the ones who are like really graceful about it, I'm always like, wow, I don't know if I could be so graceful. Yeah. What was the thing that kept you going? Was it finding all these different stories and connecting with the people? And I'd assume that the audience at some point became, you started interacting with them and and that sort of community feeling must have really taken hold. Because as you're saying at the beginning, it, it wasn't necessarily, like you couldn't necessarily earn a living doing a podcast. Yeah. I mean, I think that I was finding that on the internet, the kind of parenting content I was finding was really divisive and intentionally divisive. I think, you know, a lot of media sites that were featuring parenting content would try to make, you know, clickbaity headlines that were talking about like whether parents breastfed or bottle fed or like trying to pit parents against each other. Do you, are you, um, you know, sleep training or are you a cry, are you a no cry parent? And it was starting all of like I guess what some people call the mommy wars, which is like such a ridiculous name. Name was that an era, was that an era or like a, is that still going on the mommy wars? I don't know. Like a- I yeah I, I I think people I think it's not going on as much maybe anymore, okay. but I think that the media was like stoking that fire oh. because they didn't know how else to cover it, you know, and to make it a story. And so there were a lot of these sites that were pitting parents against each other, and then. It would blow up in comment sections of parents sort of fighting it out and like calling each other names and like saying that people were irresponsible and abusive parents. So I found that really off-putting. I wanted to create a place where people could like have different opinions and it would be okay. Right. And I wanted to make people identify with other people who were not on the face of it like them at all. And so... The show has been pretty diverse in the kinds of stories that we tell and the, and the kinds of people that we feature. And it worked. I mean, I think people have said that, um, like, for example, we did a big series on this guy named Tristan. He's trans. And this is not where his story started. But eventually, as his story unfolded, he became pregnant because he still had a uterus and had a baby with his partner, Biff. And we called the series The Accidental Gay Parents. And it got really popular. And a lot of people were saying, like, I don't know anyone like Tristan in my life. I wouldn't have thought I could identify with someone like Tristan. But through these stories, I feel like I can. When you were talking a bit about childhood media at that time, or parent media at the time, and sort of these mommy wars, one of the things I was thinking about was when I first became a parent was how quickly I realized that what you do Sometimes as a parent, if other people find out about it, sometimes and vice versa, it kind of just on its own, even if you're not meaning it to, it like stands in judgment of like the way other people do it. Or sometimes when you hear how other people do things, maybe you're a kinder internal individual than I am, but sometimes you hear things and you're like, ooh, that's not what I would, you know, it's like this natural thing. And in the rest of your life, maybe you're not so judgmental or you don't get judged so much or your actions aren't judged, but there's something about parenting maybe because the the topic or the thing is so critical, but it really brings that out. But 
my long question is, it does seem like we've entered this phase where it's more talked about and popular and understood not to do that. You know what I mean? Like that's like a trend. Now people say, hey, that's your story. I'm not going to, ju-, you know, that people sort of realize that that's a better place to be. Do you think, mm-hmm. do, do, do you agree or? You know, I think first of all, parenting is so high stakes. You literally have another person's life in your hands. And I think that's why we judge, you know, like we see other people doing it a different way. And we so desperately want to not screw it up. Like we want to be doing it right. And if you see somebody else doing it another way, then it like throws into question how you're doing it. And so I think it's really natural to to judge and to question other people and to question yourself. Whether or not it's happening more or less now, I'm not sure. But I do think the question of whether we should judge is being asked more now. Yeah. I mean, I've even noticed it with like grandparents or parents or in-laws, right? In that your own parenting style, even though it's, you know, you decide to raise your children in a certain way, it makes, and it's not necessarily like a reaction always to how your parents or grandparents did it. Or maybe you don't even think about that. But if it's at all different, even the grandparents and parents can feel judged by mm-hmm. by the new way it's being Definitely. done. Definitely. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's why really early on I decided I did not want the show to be an advice show. Yeah. I wanted it to be a storytelling show so that you could just take in the story and hear a thing that a person went through and why they did it. And then I think you're left less with, was that the right call or the wrong call? And more just like, wow, what a journey. Yeah. A way to think about your own, your own experience. Yeah. And I hope that when people hear a long, shortest time story, that they're left seeing the world slightly differently than when they began. Do you think society's view of motherhood has changed in, you know, since you started Longest Shortest Time? I don't know if society's view of it has changed, but there's certainly been a change in media since I started the show. I remember it being really hard to find any books that were about stories of motherhood, like realistic stories. I remember like Operating Instructions by Anne Lamott was like, I just treasured that book so much. And I can remember being in a waiting room at a gynecologist's office and I was reading it and another mom looked at me and she said, that's the only one. It's the only good one. It's the only (laughs) book I want to read. And now, I mean, I'm sure we were wrong. There were other books, but but now there's a whole lot of books that you can read about, like memoirs about motherhood, about whether or not you want to become a mother. And there's been a lot more journalism, I think, on motherhood as like a serious beat. I think that it's hard for some media organizations to see parenthood as a serious beat that could be reported on just as much as like housing. To jump back a bit to the editorial you wrote in the Times about the misogyny against moms, mm-hmm. that's the right way to say it. Do you think that's changed? I don't. No. A couple of weeks ago, I was on The Gist, and I was interviewed by Mike Pesca. We had a great talk, and I went to go listen to it, and I saw that the tease copy that the producer had written called me Professional Mom Hillary Frank. And I was like, uh, yeah, I really want to share this interview, but you can't call me a professional mom. 
I'm not a professional mom and nobody's a professional mom. <laughs> you know, you can call me an author. You can call me a journalist, a podcaster. Yeah. Just change it. I think that some people just don't even realize that when they do things like that, they're not taking me seriously as a professional. Right. How much of it do you think is due to the people who are in the positions that make those calls not having experienced it themselves and therefore not being as knowledgeable or sensitive to the, you know, sort of the, some of these things you're talking about? Like, I mean, just that's the thing. It, like, so. yeah, I mean, I think in a way, like, who can blame this producer for doing that, right? Because I think we don't take moms seriously as a society, right? right. right? But the fact that I called it out means, like, he had to change it and he's going to think differently next time. You were talking about earlier about some of these d different types of stories that you cover that weren't covered before. Tell me about some of the ones that you think are still not covered enough. Are there stories of parenthood or of motherhood or of raising children that are undercovered? And what type of effect does that have? So I think the things that are undercovered are like the really hard stuff, like loss, injuries. I think I I've tried to bring to light some reporting about childbirth injuries Things that have to do with the vagina, I think, are really hard for people to want to cover and for some people to want to hear. I also think that aging moms, like that's something I really haven't seen anything about that. I would love to see some great reporting on menopause. The stories of loss can be especially for parents, and I don't mean it's not challenging for other people as well, but like they can be very, very difficult to mm -hmm. read or listen to. It's just, it's like so natural to yeah. immediately sort of like, I mean, you can't identify with it if it hasn't happened to you, but to put yourself in their shoes and then it's a hard thing to get people to pay attention. Not that they would it pay is. attention, but to engage with, I guess would be the way to say it, right? I think that's true. I think though, I know... I'll like weirdly high number of people who have lost babies or had stillbirths. And I think that it's not as uncommon as people think. And then when you go through it, you really like the way that a lot of people process it is by reading stories of other people who have gone through it. And I think there are ways of telling these stories that are more nuanced than just really hammering home the loss part of it. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Right. Have you seen like a change in the way, and I didn't really seen maybe is not the right word, mm -hmm. but experienced a, a change in the way your audience parents? That's hard to say. Yeah. I don't really know, but definitely I've gotten the feedback that people um, 
are more open-minded to other types of parenting and other types of people that they encounter in their lives because of stories they've heard. Let's talk a bit about your your book, and you have a bunch of books out, but you have a, a book out, I think it was just the beginning of 2019. Yeah, just a month right? ago. Called Weird Parenting Wins. That's right. Tell people about that. So Weird Parenting Wins is partly personal essays of mine about my life as a mom and as a daughter of parents. And then the rest of it is all crowdsourced parenting strategies from the Longest Shores Time audience that you would not be likely to hear from an expert. Right. One thing I think I picked up on, you can tell me if I picked up on this correctly, a lot of people in your position would have like happily taken the mantle of parenting expert, right? And one thing I kind of got from the book and just in general, I think from your podcast and especially talking about the book is, and if you think you are an expert, I do, I do too. So please feel free to own that. But it definitely seems like you aren't so comfortable claiming to be the expert and more comfortable with having the advice come from listeners. Is that a fair? That is fair. I am not a parenting expert. I don't know anything about the right way to parent. I don't care how other people parent, but I want to give people the resources to be able to parent the way they want to. And I think that that's been a hard distinction for me to get across. Like, thank you for saying that because it's a hard distinction for me to get across when I go and am interviewed by certain people because I'm a parenting journalist. So I've researched a bunch of different things having to do with parenthood. And I've interviewed lots of people about their experiences parenting. But I am not like a psychologist. You know, I haven't studied best outcomes in parenting. But it seems like I think people would say, yes, but you've gone around and talked to the most amount of people who are experts and you have Mm -hmm. the most amount of information. Therefore, that makes you an expert. But it it sounds like maybe that that experience in itself has like led you to recognize that you know, not that only that you're not an expert, but that like sort of nobody is. That nobody is. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think there are certain people who are experts in certain things. And and there are some psychologists who have written books that I think are really excellent. I read a lot of books when I first had my kid that were like, you know, the best way to soothe your baby and to feed your baby and to get your baby to go to sleep and then potty training later on and discipline. And a lot of these books are written from a my way or the highway perspective. It's like you either do it my way or you're doing it wrong. And when I was a sleep-deprived new parent struggling to just get through a day and just like turning to these books for advice on how to get through that day, if I found that those techniques weren't working, I felt like a failure. And I felt like Uh, there, there must be something wrong with me or with my kid or both of us. I think that there's not a lot of subtlety in those books. And some of them make it seem like what you've already done, like it's too late. (laughs) You've already screwed them up. And like, you know, there's no hope for your future with your kid. So then then what do you do? Like if you've done the thing that they say never do. Right. I've been at those like community meeting or whatever groups sometimes too when it's like there's an expert there who's there to share information and somebody raises their hand and says like, oh, I did this. And then the person's face is like, ooh, (laughs) I'm making like an oh no face. And you can see like the sort of just like the wash over the parent's face, like, oh my God, what have I, you know? And it's probably not really that that bad. But I mean, the things that I figured out worked for me were things that I made up out of thin air. You know, when 
in moments of desperation and through trial and error. And so I asked the Longest Shortest Time audience if they had similar things that they had invented themselves that worked with their kids. And the answers I got back were hilarious. Tell me, you know? do you have some favorites that you yeah. really like to share? Well, so in that first ask, there was a dad who, to get his daughter to stop crying as a baby, he would pig snort in her ear. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was like this couple who would take turns charging their electric toothbrushes and using them like a white noise machine on the baby, like <sighs> conducting the baby to sleep with this buzzing toothbrush. So once I saw those, I was like, I think we can keep collecting these and right. turn them into a book. Yeah. Um, do, and do you get re reaction? I assume that when you share them in the book, then people start, you get reactions that then make it into the podcast. Yeah, it was cool because we could keep asking for them on the podcast. And then I would share a few, like a little bit at a time, I would share the ones that were coming in and then it would make people think of other things. And they would, yeah, it really like feeds on itself. Well, did you get solutions or ideas from readers that you thought were you're just like, that's insane. <laughs> Probably. I, I mean, we got a little under 900 submissions wow. and used about 370 of them. Wow. And so a lot of the ones that didn't make it in were either not weird enough to be in a book called Weird Parenting Wins, or they were um, just another version of something else that was in the book because there were a lot of, there's a lot of overlap. I read something recently from you that was all about how you felt like being well-rested was like a really important part of being good at weird parenting wins. And maybe I'm, but basically maybe it was present instead of rested. Yeah, it was like that you had to centered. be there yeah. in order to do the, like to think of doing these crazy things, you had to be in the moment to have the energy. Did I get that right? Yeah. So it's hard for me to think of a parent who would call themselves well-rested. Yeah, but when when you're trying to aim for like recognizing your own creativity as a parent, you've got to feel kind of centered yourself. And so a lot of the strategies in the book are about like getting me time as a parent. So like one of my favorites for that is something called What's on My Butt? So there's this mom named Maggie who <laughs> sent this thing in, and she does a thing with her daughter where she lies face down on the couch and then sends her daughter to go look for some random object to put on her butt. And then she has to lie there and guess what it is. The longer it takes you to guess, oh the longer gosh. you get to rest. Genius. Yeah. Wow. That's so smart. Um, I really identified with that because I, I definitely felt like it, you know, there's always the times where things are going wrong and you just can't figure out how to make it go right. And mm -hmm. so much of it at the end of the day and the times it does go right is because you like did something different or creative or you had some extra bit of energy or you were present or, but you just were like, it's not so much that the technique was like necessarily so genius, but you just had that extra bit of something to really know what was happening and come up with a good solution. Well, a lot of these things too are about being playful and how can you even begin to be playful if, if you're just like going out of your mind from stress? I want to talk about social media a little bit mm -hmm. if we can. Yeah. Um, and I think back to the sort of idea around judgment, right? I think mm -hmm. um, one of the things about the internet and social media in the world of parenting is that you now see, you know, it's really easy to see all these other families. And mm -hmm. some of the families like have parents who are like really great at taking photographs or are just like 
good marketers or yeah. are really good personal expressors or whatever, like have qualities that make their life on social media look, you know, I'm sure it is awesome, but basically <laughs> just, you know, and sometimes those things can like stand in judgment against you as you're looking at them or as parents look at them and, you know, oh, I'm not doing that or I'm not doing this. And uh, how do you think about that? Do you think that's something that parents struggle with these days? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's two versions of that also where there's the parents who look really pristine and like braggy. And then there's also the ones who are almost braggy about their hashtag parent fails, you know, and then you hold yourself up against that in a weird way where you're like, oh, like, am I also as bad as that person? <laughs> um, yeah, it's hard to not compare yourself. And it's hard to also imagine because we because we've become parents in the age of social media, what it was like when you couldn't see all of that. Yeah. I mean, and on the other hand, we get to see a lot of our friends, like families and like their experience as parents and our families and their children. I mean, like I, I feel like I have a much better connection to a whole bunch of like kids that I don't really see that much but that I do have a very close friendship with the parents. So that part's great. But at the same time, they're all right next to each other. It's yeah. not like we just get the one part of it. Well, two things. First, when you're saying that, it makes me realize that when we see our friends' kids, it's like an extended holiday card with like more candid shots, which is nice. But also, you can curate your feed, Yeah, you know? If, if if you're seeing things that are bothering you and making you go in a weird corner of your mind, like yeah. just unfollow. <laughs> Good point, I guess. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more to wrap up on this question of discrimination against working moms because I know you did um, – you've had some different stories about it and you've really focused on it. For those who don't know, why does – why do you think American work culture and laws discriminate against working moms or do you think that they do? Yeah, I do think that they do. Um, so – Mothers get paid less, are promoted less, and get hired less than fathers and people without kids. And mothers do not perform any worse in studies. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of discrimination that happens in a lot of different ways in the American workplace. But the biggest problem, I think, is that, you know, we, we have a culture of the ideal worker where people are rewarded and praised for making work their entire life. And that doesn't really benefit anybody. And it really harms mothers the most. And interestingly, you know, fathers benefit from it because employers tend to compliment fathers for spending time with their kids. And they assume that mothers are not going to be available. In your reporting, what have you found? Have you found companies or, you know, people or just in general, have you found instances where they do really, they have great practices that prohibit that? Like, what do you think, what are some examples of, of yeah. ways that, that can be fixed? So there's this company called Badger in New Hampshire, and this is a pretty extreme policy. Not every workplace would be able to do this, but they have a, a babies at work program where up to a certain age, I can't remember how long um, parents and it can be mothers or fathers can bring their baby to work and they they have you know 
proper um, setups for feeding the baby. Um, this is one of the biggest problems in workplaces is not providing proper like lactation rooms. A lot of moms are being forced to pump in the bathroom or feed in the bathroom and they're not being given enough time to mm. pump. Do you have any other, any other oh, examples, any other examples? Of, of, of positive uh, change in this area? I don't know if there has been any change, broadly speaking, Fair enough. for moms working in American workplaces today. But I have seen more books on the topic since we did the series. There's this great book by Amy Westervelt called Forget Having It All. And there's one coming out called All the Rage. And that one really addresses the inequities in relationships between female and male partners. Right. So I think there's a lot of work to be done. And it, it really means like a massive overhaul of how our society thinks of ideal workers and how parenting inequities play out at home. But I'm glad to see more reporting on the topic because I think it'll bring more awareness to the American public. Did you find that there were other places in the world that were more progressive in, in this area and that were that were more accomplished and yeah. it wasn't as much of a problem? Definitely. And the, the biggest example, and we actually groaned out loud when we heard this, was Sweden because, you know. <laughs> Everybody's happy in Sweden. Yeah, everyone's yeah. happy in Sweden. <laughs> but the, the interesting thing about Sweden was they – made this policy that was supposed to incentivize dads to take paternity leave so that it would be more equal between moms and dads so that employers wouldn't discriminate against moms because they didn't know who would be taking the leave and for how long. Right. Dads weren't taking it because they thought that it would stigmatize them. Right. And so what they did was you either had to take it or you lost it. And that really helped. And now there are more dads. Yeah. Taking and there are some companies here in the U.S. mostly that have women leadership on it, mm -hmm. right? Let's be honest, who have very progressive paternity leave policies specifically for this purpose so that it's not perceived as somebody has a, a family has a child, only the woman takes leave and the man doesn't. And they really – some. It's, it's not a lot, but it's definitely – they're out there. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's really important for – dads when they're offered leave to take it and to take all of it yeah, because that helps to stigmatize it less for moms. Yeah. Did you encounter um, women in your reporting who were particularly good at navigating this challenge of discrimination against them as, as a working mom and also, you know, sort of navigating that and also flourishing in their career? Yeah. So Bridget Schulte has been really amazing on this. She's done some of the best reporting on the topic of discrimination against working moms. She really points out that she was able to win awards and do some of her best work as a mom who was a journalist. And what did she did she share? Like, what was what were some of the things that allowed her to do that? Was it just being more conscientious and understanding the challenges and, and making sure that she's you know left at the right you know that kind of thing? Or yeah, is, I think yeah. it's like managing her time. Uh -huh. And I've heard a lot of people say that um, when they become a parent, they just become a more efficient worker. Yeah, because you have to fit it in. You can't say like, you know, I'm going to put this off until I feel like it. Right. What What's next for Longest Shortest Time podcast, media company? Mm -hmm. What are you working on now? 
So I'm not hosting the show anymore. Andrea Salenzi is doing that and she's doing a beautiful job. What made you decide to do that? Yeah, so I had been hosting the show for seven years and just felt like I was ready for something new. Uh And I was working on this book and it seemed like a good time to step out and do that and think about what's next. I'm weighing a couple different options, but I really like the idea of expanding the Longest Shortest Time universe. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting and a cool thing. It takes a lot of confidence, I think, to have made something that's very successful and then confidence to step away, you know, because when you make the golden goose, so to speak, not that it's like a monetary thing, but when you make something that's so successful, people know that those things aren't, don't always come around all the time and they're afraid of moving on to the next thing. Uh, But I thought, I just thought it was like super cool that you were confident enough. Why shouldn't you be? to like let somebody else do that, knowing that you had built this thing and you could do more with it or whatever else you were going to do. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I had a couple of examples of people who had done that successfully. And and maybe the biggest one is Planet Money with Alex Bloomberg and yeah. Adam Davidson. Yeah. Cool. Hillary Frank, thanks for joining us on the Webby Podcast. It's been great having you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much to Hillary for joining us on the podcast. Listen to the latest season of The Longest Shortest Time everywhere you get your podcasts. You won't be disappointed. And make sure you get a copy of Hillary's incredible book, especially the parents out there, Weird Parenting Wins. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoy this episode, please share it and take a few seconds to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the Webby Awards, please visit us at www.webbyawards.com and on social at The Webby Awards. As always, you can reach me on Twitter at DMD Likes. Our producer is Terrence Brosnan. Our writer is Jordana Jarrett. Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is the nice person at the window that says everything looks great and gives you your new license. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is The Webby Podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.